Take your scriptures this morning and join me in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5 this morning. Now these are the commandments. These statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God, Yahweh Elohim, commanded to teach you that ye might do them in the land whither ye go to possess it. That thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command thee, thou and thy son, and thy son's son all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear, therefore, O Israel, Shema, therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk. And honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Father, these words are familiar, and we return to them this morning that we might think about those unique applications of this Old Testament text concerning the nation of Israel to our New Testament life in the Lord. There are ways in which we perceive ourselves to be uniquely unprepared to receive such a truth, but we pray that you would help us to be hearing ourselves and appropriating of the word to the benefit of the soul this morning, we awesome, have some awesome responsibilities and some awesome opportunities to see the truths of Scripture in direct application to our souls. Help us then. We pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake, amen. People all over the world this morning know that the Ukrainians love their country. If you were to ask me a year ago, do Ukrainian people love their country? I would have probably said, well, I suppose they do. But this morning, I would join you in saying, oh yeah, oh yeah. The Ukrainians love their country. We sit as a congregation this morning knowing that the Ukrainians love their country. The world knows that the Ukrainians love their country. But here's what's on my heart and mind this morning. The people in this world know that we love God.
absolutely nothing new this morning but the reminder of things that are important and true this morning. This morning's message is true but not new. In some ways, some of you could preach it as well as I can preach it. God and love cannot be separated. In fact, love doesn't exist apart from God. God is love, and God does love his people from eternity past to eternity future. He already knew fully engaged in eternity past who was his, provided for them in real time and secured them for eternity future. I'm, I'm glad to know myself to be one of them. But if I told you this morning that I understand that, which I just told you, I'd be lying. The grasp of God's eternal love for me, his eternal love for you, is beyond my human comprehension. I feel stunted to think about the love wherewith we are loved by God. But when I say to you on Sunday morning, when I say to my own soul this morning, God loves you. It's a phenomenal truth to be sure. God has loved his people from eternity past to eternity future. It, it just then makes good sense. It's just rational that people so loved by God would love him back and would love him back wholeheartedly. Loving God is the first emphasis of four emphases that we note and make in returning to the study of Deuteronomy 6 in this month of March. We're returning to this chapter in the Old Testament in order to make four practical applications for our lives as New Testament saints. This is about the Old Testament people of God, uh, but we are using it to make New Testament applications to our own lives. We've previously worked this text in three venues. We first worked this particular text during the educational hour some years ago to teach Shema, the single most important doctrinal truth given to the Jewish people under Moses. We have also addressed this text previously during the instruction hour, making the Old Testament, New Testament correspondences between promised land and promised life. And now this morning, we're returning to the text for worship in order that we might make over this month four practical applications of the truth here as found in the Old Testament setting for the lives of New Testament saints. The principles, the four principles that flow out of this Old Testament chapter directly impact our understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you ask people around here, are you a follower of Christ? Most likely you'll hear the answer, yes. Well, what exactly does that mean? Well, here are four practical applications from the Old Testament scripture concerning the New Testament saint as to his discipleship. You may remember that way back in the series that we taught in the educational hour, we referenced the book by Jim Berg, and the four things that are identified there concerning this section of the Word of God. 
that to be a disciple of Christ means you love God. Who loved you first? To be a, a, a disciple of Christ means that you understand yourself to be a word-filled communicator or teacher of truth to others. Thirdly, that you uh, see yourself as a ministry-minded overseer. And fourthly, laborers together with God. Deuteronomy 6, 1-5 reminds us that people of God are to be God-loving First and foremost, God loving. God's people love God back. I would trust that part of the reason why you came this morning uh, to the worship hour at 10 o'clock is because, in fact, you love God. And God is pleased for your being here to do what we do in response to love for God. John Piper helps us to characterize the issue of loving God in relationship to worship. He writes, true worship does not come from people whose feelings are like air ferns. You know what an air fern is? I didn't until I moved to Florida back as a, as a young adult. Air ferns are these plants that grow in trees and have no roots. They're kind of fun to be around. They're ugly ultimately, but nonetheless, they're, they, they have no roots. And uh, Piper says that worship is not like an air fern or unrooted in solid ground of biblical doctrine. The only affections that honor God are those rooted in the rock of biblical truth. There is to be a, a principled sense of response to our discipleship again and again. Our text is related to a particular moment in time, and I would quickly refresh your memory concerning it. When the nation of Israel stood at the gateway to the land of promise after 40 years of wilderness wandering, God's <clears throat> prophet and mediator, Moses, addressed the Israelis knowing that, of course, he himself would not be going with them into the land of promise. On this day of record, the man of God, Moses, reminded the people of God in the next generation of God's law. Verse 1, Moses had been commissioned of Yahweh to teach uh, the content of that law and to train the people in living obedience to the law as taught. Again, now these are the commandments, the statutes, the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you that ye might do them in the land whither ye go to possess it. Teach, train. Moses had twofold responsibility. It's the same responsibility of every pastor. It's the same responsibility of every parent. What is that responsibility? Teach those that are placed in authority positions by God, Moses being the example of Deuteronomy 6, but we could talk about the parent in the home or the pastor in the local church. <clears throat> those placed in a position of authority are to take what they know about God and they are to communicate what they know uh, to the next generation, to the people around them. Teach it. And then, of course, training 
Training is something different than teaching that is focused upon knowledge. Training has to do with action, has to do with energy, has to do with activity. It has to do with what you do. You can see both teach and train in this first verse because Moses is to teach the nation of Israel and to train them in specific details from God to them as attached to living in the land of promise that was about to be entered and possessed. I would pause this morning to remind you that doctrine always has a behavioral component. Teaching is all about knowing the truth. Training is all about doing the truth. Moses was to teach and to train the people. Again, this morning you and I have a ready illustration of this from the news. It is the fight and the tenacity that you and I have seen in the Ukrainians that evidence their love for country Their manifestation of love for country is energetic and to this point, endless. And I would call it a great love of country. But the Ukrainians' love of country comes with no promise of well-being or success. What did I just say? I just said the Ukrainians will not defend and love and keep their homeland just because they love it. There's no promise associated with love in connection to possession of a homeland. And that stands in contrast to one nation and only one nation, Israel. The nation of Israel is the only nation that was ever on this earth that was told that if they loved God energetically and endlessly, that they would have a promise from God of a great life in the land of promise. The national security and well-being of the nation of Israel depends upon their love for God. It always did. And it still does today. The only way the nation of Israel can be secure in their land is to love Yahweh Elohim. Love for God. Ukrainian love for country will not necessarily secure their nation, but Israeli love for God would secure their nation. Therefore, Moses was to teach and train the people in, among other things, loving God. Because loving God was a securing reality in the land of promise. This teaching and training was purposeful, as you see in verse 2, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, and that the days, and that thy days may be prolonged. 
The teaching and training was purposeful. Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, was to be uh, exercised uh, uh, towards uh, uh, with a, a righteous sense of fear and reverence and acknowledgement and obedience. And not just by the people that were alive in that, in that generation that heard Moses say these words, but by the next generation and the generation after that, as indicated by the words, you and your son and thy son's son. By sequential generations within the land of promise, the nation was to be secured by love God back, by keeping God's command. It's interesting because in this modern era, when we read Old Testament texts, we are so detached from uh, the culture and so detached from sometimes the, the, the historical moment and so detached from what is going on that we, we tend to read things personally in such a way that it's just not at all what's being said. Like, for instance, in verse 2 where it says, uh, Thee and thy, thou, thy son, and thy son send all the days of thy life, and th that thy days may be prolonged. Most people hear that and they think, well, it means that if you were going to live to be 80, that somehow by obeying these commands you live to be 100. And there is nothing personal about a long life indicated in the words, thy days be prolonged. You want to understand exactly what God is talking about there? You have to back up to the fifth chapter in verse 33. It says this, yeah, Ye shall walk in the ways in which the Lord your God hath commanded you, that ye may live, and that ye may be well with you, and that ye may prolong your days in the land which ye possess. The prolonging aspect of days was the prolonging health and well-being of the nation in the land of promise. It's not talking about the fact that you wouldn't die at 60, but you'd die at, at uh, 90 or 100. No, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the fact that the Jewish people would secure their national reality and their blessedness of prosperity by nature of a response to God's law, which begins with loving God back. Therefore, Israel was to hear God, or Shema, as we've called attention to it previously, verse 3. Hear, therefore, O Israel. Verse 4, hear, O Israel, as the means to well-being and prosperity. Now listen to this. The means to national well-being and prosperity in the nation of Israel was the perpetual hearing of God and loving God back who loved them first. The land of promise was an agricultural paradise flowing with milk and honey. This depiction especially is impactful when held in contrast to the wilderness where the nation had been living for an entire generation. Then, beginning at verse 4, you have uh, the Shema proper and that particular expression to be given the highest place and routine among the Jewish people. It is upon the theological truth declared in verse 4 that Israel proves itself not to be an air plant. They're not just called upon to love God and keep his commandments without a root or foundation in theological truth. No, the truth is found in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And I remind you that which many of us have previously studied, that this idea of Yahweh's oneness is what we understand to be three things. Number one, an identifying of God in monotheistic terms. There is only one true God 
of heaven and earth. He alone is to be worshipped. While we do not find biblical reference, uh, or I should say we do find other references to the gods, small g, especially those worshipped by pagans, we understand that the only reality behind such worship of God, small g, is demonic or evil and angelic. Demons are fallen angels and not gods at all. There's only one creator, one God, one Father, and that is Yahweh, Father, Son, and Spirit. Identifying God is characteristically faithful and true is the second thing. Uh, the one God helps us to uh, identify God as characteristically faithful and true. It's not only say that God is one just in number one, but that he is faithful and immutable. Yahweh does not run hot and cold. He is not on and off again. He is ever living. He is ever loving. He is ever just. Easy words to say. Hard concepts to get your brain around. Because that is so unlike me. It's so unlike you. Ever living? No. You and I deal with the, with the limitations of life and mortality day in and day out. Uh, ever loving? Ever loving? <laughs> you and I deal with a fickleness of love. One day we're hot, one day we're cold. Uh, ever just? You and I are, are, I trust, often right. But none of us would always would say ever right or always right. All of us must confess something less than perfection. But God is ever living, ever loving, ever just. He does not change ever. And this doctrinal foundation, the Lord our God is one Lord, is also the basis of understanding that God is absolutely perfect, consistent in, ever, in every way and particularly in a simple way. He is all that he is all the time, and nothing else but that which he is. Glorious and characteristic, ever full and true all the time. In the last book of the Bible, God the Son is presented to us both as a lion and as, an, and as a lamb. He is simply the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he is simply the lamb he is not a composite being of lion and lamb. He is not part truth and part grace, but full of grace and full of truth. He is simply all that he is all the time. And when you and I live and direct our worship, it is to be in specific response to God as he is. That living sense of unto God even as the Puritans called it, theoxia. And so then we get to, in verse 5, the first element of this living unto God, this first element of, of righteous response to God, loving God wholeheartedly. It is indeed, as it was, the personal priority of the people of God. Loving God was priority number one for Israel. Loving God is priority number one for the disciples of Christ. The Lord Jesus plainly said that love God was the greatest of all the commandments under the law. Twice 
In the record of the New Testament Gospels, the Lord Jesus spoke to a Jewish leader in the terms of loving God. Six months before the crucifixion, the Lord was approached by a Jewish scribe who was inquiring about the inheritance of eternal life. The Lord pointed the man to the truth of Shema, saying, This do, and thou shalt live. Three days before the crucifixion, on Tuesday of Passion Week, the Pharisees, who had been adversarial and interacting with the Lord in those days just prior to the crucifixion, prompted one of their own scribes to ask Jesus about the greatest of all the commandments in the law. After quoting this portion of Deuteronomy chapter 6, which of course would have been a part of the Pharisees' daily prayers, morning and night, Jesus said that all the Old Testament law and the writings of the Jewish prophets hang upon the truth of love God and love your neighbor as yourself. The love God command of Deuteronomy 6.5 is qualified by all one's heart. It says, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. You spend a little time meditating upon those threefold divisions of love directed back towards God who loves us first. You see that it is a matter of inward decision. It is a matter of outward devotion. It is a matter of ongoing diligence. Now I want us to be clear of the fact that the idea of loving God back, the command, thou shalt love the Lord thy God, is predicated upon the fact that the people of Israel were first loved by God. And you see that most clearly if you just turn the page with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, you have that truth as it's established and well known among the Jewish people of that day. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, notice the E-D, loved. God loved Israel with an everlasting love. They were led by grace, that love to know. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of the bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So the idea of loving God is, of course, and we all understand this in, in our minds, that loving God back is, is reciprocal. It's, it's a response that God's love has come down to people, and people then are expected by God to render their love back up uh, to God. So if Israel would obey God, and recognize that God's love had come down to them, and in response, their love go back to God, and God's love come down, and their love go up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down and up. The cycle, like a water cycle, the love cycle that God established for the nation of Israel would secure the nation in the land of promise. 
God established that the defense mechanisms for the nation of Israel would be forever settled in the love cycle. God's love down to them, their love up to God. And that, of course, is exactly the same cycle that we find in the New Testament scriptures. Verse 5 specifies this loving the Lord in terms of heart, or if you will, a matter of inward decision. The making up of one's mind to love back on the basis of being loved. There's a logic, there's a rationale, there's a response that is associated with this love command to Israel. Heart, inward decision. Soul, or life, if you will. It's not only a matter of inward decision, it's a matter of outward devotion. Outward devotion. And then you have the word might, or strength. This love that is back towards God is is strong and energetic. It's an ongoing matter of diligence. And so we have three things in that fifth verse. Heart, loving God from the inner life of personal desire. Soul, uh, loving God in the way that you go about living. And might, loving God with the expenditure of effort. As the people of God, we are to be loving towards God. We are to act loving towards God. And we are to keep at it daily, whether Old Testament or New Testament saint. Loving God is priority number one. So when the Lord Jesus brings this idea of the life cycle to bear in the life of his disciples, this is what he had to say. If any man come to me and hate not his father, mother, his wife, and children, his brethren, his sisters, yea, his own life also, cannot be my disciple. The question that has to be answered in the life of every disciple of Christ is, do you think the Lord was serious? You think when the Lord brings the idea of every other relationship in life in which you and I are naturally drawn to, mother, father, sister, brother, wife, children, yeah, your own life, natural emotions, natural responses, natural energies directed towards those that are ours. Of course I'm going to go there. He's my son. Of course I'm going to attend. She's my granddaughter. Of course I'm going to take care. It's my child or my dad or my mother. Israel was told that they were to be particularly responsive to their God. Yahweh Elohim. Jesus took that principle of love, that love cycle that you see in the Shema, that you see in Deuteronomy 6, and brought it right into the New Testament concept of discipleship. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not that you say you love God. It's that you love by living as unto God. And that you endure in that love. And that's why Jesus used the comparative word hate. 
in relationship to those other relationships in which we find ourselves most naturally responding. Do I see in you, do you see in me, natural loving responses to people that are our family? Yeah, of course we do, all the time. But that's not the question of the hour. The question of the hour is, do people see? Do you see in me? Do I see in you? Does the world see in us? Loving God. Knowing that God loved us first. The second thing this morning, we'll have to be quick about it, but loving God was and is the path of your greatest personal influence upon others. We've talked about this many times before. Has not your opinion of the Ukrainians lifted higher as you see evidence of their love for country. Certainly it has. Why, a year ago, a year and a half ago, two years ago, uh, I had a couple of Ukrainian missionaries that were on my prayer list that I would hit from time to time. But as far as having any great thought of the Ukrainian people, I, uh, I had no great thought uh, of them a year and a half ago, two years ago, in regards to my prayers or my life. Uh, it's a far, far away from here in this place, and uh, I didn't have too many thoughts of them. But I'll tell you, it's hard right now to, uh, to pray at all without thinking about uh, our brothers and sisters that are, are in Ukraine. Uh, I, I know a very few of them, but uh, I'm sure there's a lot more than what I know. And I imagine that it'd be very hard to live the way that those dear people are facing life to be lived these days. My opinion of them has lifted as I see the evidence of their life. Who and what you actually do love is ultimately evident to others. It is your path to greatest influence. When a person actually does love God, it shows. And it impacts those that see it. The look of a life lived in loving God shows up in obedience to the word of God. We live in such a goofy day. Listen to this goofiness. Here's a man that really loves God, but he mistreats his wife perpetually. Does that man really love God? Here's a man that really loves God, but steals from his employer. Does that man really love God? Oh, here's a man that really loves God, but does not gather with saints for worship. Does that man really love God? In this day, you and I are constantly, constantly asked of other Christian people to believe things that bear no evidence. When I say to you the Ukrainians love their country, you believe it. Because there is evidence of it to the world this morning. But there is a serious disconnect in the minds of many that propose loving God can operate apart from Christ-like obedience. If Zelensky had claimed great love for Ukraine, 
but quickly took Biden's offer for a ride out of town. We would not be admiring his heroics, nor touting his love for his country. Would we now? Mr. Z, we perceive to be the real deal because he's living his love on behalf of his country. The simple point that we're making this morning is, as the people of God, so must we. Thirdly, loving God was and is the only proper response to a delivered people. Nothing is more basic, nothing to spiritual, true spirituality or to Christian living uh, than love. The operation of love in the life of the believer is supernatural and spirit-generated. We know from the pen of the Apostle Paul that Bible knowledge, that great talents and gifts, and even faith itself without love is unprofitable and empty. Loving God back is the hallmark of righteous worship and service. It's interesting to me that in the generation after Moses, after Joshua had led the people in the successful campaign of conquest, it's interesting to me that, that uh, Joshua faithfully demanded of the people after they were secured in the land the very same principles of loving God. Loving God before they took the land, loving God when they were in the land, loving God, loving God, loving God. You see that. Just take a quick look at it. Our time's about gone. But look at Joshua chapter 22. And the summary of the things that we read in Deuteronomy 6, many, many years later, as Joshua, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, summarizes everything that Moses had taught and trained the people, saying, 22.5, But take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law which the Moses, the servant of the Lord, charged you to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, and to cleave unto him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Right there in that verse is the connection of things that has stirred my mind this week, and that is, love the Lord your God, jump down in the text, serve him. Love God, worship God. The only righteous worship rendered to God is by a loving people. Those that love him back. I printed for you on the bulletin the good written commentary of Burke Parsons. Let me just read it for you now as we prepare to conclude. Every day we hear people talk about love as if it were some sort of impersonal force or independent energy that alone has power to change hearts, restore homes, cure diseases, rebuild communities, and unite nations. The world is infatuated with the idea of love, even the word itself, love, has degenerated into an all-encompassing catch-all term that seems to be at the heart of a rising one-religion-politically-correct world language, the language of love that has become a religion unto itself, 
And although the world, the flesh, and the devil would love to strip love of all its beauty and character in order to make it adaptable to every conceivable context in theology, such would be a futile attempt, for just as God defines God, God defines love. What is it? It is what God says it is. Love does not exist apart from God. Scripture declares that God loves you. Scripture demands that you and I love God back. I pray that you would be God-living and God-loving to the joy and blessing of your family, to the joy and blessing of this church family. Everything in the spiritual life of the believer, everything in the spiritual life of the church is dependent upon the love cycle from God down to us, from us up to God. From God down to us and us up to God. It is the love cycle that secures the local church. It's the love cycle that secures uh, the believer in the experience of victory and blessing in the things of the Lord. Uh, we declare that God loves us. Oh, how we must love God back. Father, help us this 